Hi, welcome everyone to the first episode of Sepad Discusses. I'm delighted that we've been able to pull this together during a uh, summer break. And I'm really excited about what is going to follow over the next hour, hour and a half or so. Uh, what we'll be doing over the course of this session, and indeed in, in future sessions, is spending a bit of time with, with experts in the field discussing particular um, works or topics. And I'm delighted that this first episode or event will be discussing Fanad Haddad's wonderful new book, Understanding Sectarianism. And I'm really pleased that we have Fanad here to, um, to discuss things with us. I, too, have my copy of it to hand. But we also have two wonderful colleagues who can help shed some light on some of the themes and topics and concepts that Fanad deals with across the book. We have, uh, we have an Iraq expert, of course, in Professor Charles Tripp. Charles is Professor of Politics with a focus on the Middle East at SOAS. But we also have an expert on sectarianism, uh, Morten Valbjorn. Uh, from Aarhus University, SEPAD Fellow, Associate Professor in Political Science. So I'm absolutely delighted that we've been able to put this panel together. What we're going to do over the, the next hour or so is, is work through a number of themes that have been identified in Fanar's book that we thought would be, would be important to discuss and to reflect upon that can hopefully help shed light on, on what it is that Fanar is doing in the book, but also in terms of the broader debates and questions about, about sectarianism broadly, or sect-based politics, as perhaps we might be a better place calling it in light of uh, what we're discussing today, but then also in terms of, of the, the broader Middle East. So I think it's going to be a really interesting set of discussions. We've got a range of topics that we've identified. We're going to try and have this, this first part as a relatively free-flowing back and forth that can hopefully help us to, to pick out some of these things in an organic sort of discussion. And, and my role will be to, to try and facilitate things rather than to add anything of, of substance. And then for the final section, we will open the floor to Q&A. If you do have questions, I could, I'd like to ask you to put them in the Q&A section, which is on the top of your screen. Um, that will help us to keep track of them as they come in, the order in which they come in. But I think that's just about all of the housekeeping that I need to do, other than say um, that if you want to engage in discussions, you can do so on social media using the hashtag SEPADDiscusses. Now, I think what I need to do now then is introduce our inaugural speaker, um, presenter, author extraordinaire, Dr. Fanar Haddad, visiting fellow at the LSE's Middle East Centre and author of this absolutely wonderful new book, Understanding Sectarianism. So, Fanar, I believe um, in conversation with Morton and Charles, the idea is for you to just contextualise a little bit about why you, why you wrote the book, and then we can delve into some of the, the nitty-gritty topics that you flag up there. So, the floor is yours. Well, thank you very much, Simon, and thanks, of course, also to Charles and Morton for doing this, and thanks for everyone for attending. Um, very happy to be talking to you about this. I mean, I suppose in terms of the motivations behind the book, uh, I mean, over the last 15, 20 years or so, 
the study of sectarian dynamics, sectarian identity, sectarian relations has grown hugely uh, since 2003. It's also grown qualitatively as well. I mean, this, when you compare it to the literature a decade ago, it's certainly become more nuanced, more sophisticated, but still, I find this, the study of sectarian identity and sectarian relations to be to continue to be very, very problematic in how the subject is approached, in how we all seem to be talking past each other. Uh, often the, the, the debates, the lack of coherence, we seem to be talking past each other, given how multifaceted the subject is. Uh, and the problem with how uh, second identity is conceptualized and how it's variously understood by different scholars and different researchers. So part of the motivation is to, firstly, to demystify the concept of sectarian, of Middle Eastern sectarian identity, to de-exoticize it, to demystify it, um, and also to try to help to move the debate forward beyond what I'm sure you'd agree are some rather dated binaries and uh, dichotomies and frames of reference that we've been debating for years on end uh, that I think are less than helpful. And there's room to move on, particularly given the growth in the literature in quantity and in quality. Uh, so those are briefly like the, the, the basic motivations behind um, the book, essentially, like most authors, I saw something wrong with a particular field, and uh, I'm trying to uh, sort of uh, rectify that, if you like. Fantastic. Well, thank you. Sorry, rookie Zoom error there for getting to unmute myself. Thank you for that, Fanar. Uh, really interesting contextualization, and I think you've yeah, hit the nail on the head. We find a gap, and we uh, find a problem and try and resolve it. So I guess that problem is fundamentally sort of boiled down to a question, and that question is, what is sectarianism then? Would that be fair to say? If we're trying to understand something, we need to, to define it, and that's what you've spent a lot of time doing. So perhaps we can kick open this, this discussion just by uh, saying, well, what is sectarianism? What is the, the, the nitty-gritty conceptual material that we're dealing with here? Uh, well, first, I forgot to thank you for using the quote, quote mark when, uh, when introducing the book, because uh, one of the central contentions of the book is that the term sectarianism is not only redundant, it is counterproductive. Um, there are three main flaws with the term, and I think that these have had a cascading effect uh, on the literature, on the field, on how we all have approached the subject. And the three flaws are this. Firstly, obviously, it's the endless ways the term is understood at the time uh, 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 frames the term sectarianism. It's understood in, this, in, in, in endless, many ways, contradictory ways. Uh, so that's one flaw. The second flaw is the absurdly catch-all qualities of the term sectarianism, whereby in some studies and in some conversations and in some conferences, you notice the term being used to refer to just about anything that can be related to sectarian identity. Uh, and the third flaw is the negativity of the term. Uh, the term is toxic, it's uh, viewed, overwhelmingly it's viewed as, as a negative term, just a normatively negative term. Um, now those three flaws combined uh, have some practical consequences. There's real practical problematic consequences to these terms. And bear in mind the policy relevance of this, of this phrase. So analytically, um, 
because the term is taken to mean so much, remember the catch-all qualities and that and the lack of definition, it's taken to mean so much that in some cases it's also taken to explain so much, when in reality it explains nothing. So I'll give you an example. In some of the literature on Lebanon, particularly in the commentary on Lebanon and on Iraq, uh, sectarianism comes to act as a sort of an explainer for systemic corruption. That systemic corruption is caused by sectarianism, whatever the hell it means. Um, yet that is a classic case, as far as I'm concerned, of analytic misdirection, because if sect you know, by, by imagining that sectarianism causes, or a confessional-based system, let's say, causes, uh, causes corruption, we overlook structural drivers such as weak institutions, weak rule of law, weak oversight mechanisms, and the like. Uh, and what I always say to that is that it is not impossible to imagine a confessionally-based system that is actually efficient. So uh, a confessional-based system doesn't cause corruption. And for evidence of that, look to places like uh, um, Belgium, some parts of Belgian governance, and also in Switzerland as well, where you have elements of that sort of communal division of, of, of uh, power, uh, but in an efficient system. So it ends up bl uh, blurring cause and effect is what I'm trying to get at. Another practical consequence of this problematic term is that it reinforces precisely through that, because it's such a, a, a mystified and exoticized term, it reinforces Orientalist views towards the region. And we see this in how the term is employed to justify foreign policy towards the region. Um, within the region itself, uh, the term is repeatedly used, quite effectively, I might add, to silence and delegitimize political opposition and dissent. And again, this, this brings us back to this issue of lack of negativity combined with the casual qualities, combined with uh, um, the lack of definition. I mean, if the thing had, had, had a, uh, if sectarianism had a clearer definition, it would be less easy to throw the term about to delegitimize opposition uh, and to vilify and isolate political activism when it emerges from uh, sectarian outgroups. One final, I'll give you a final example of the practical problems with the term. So recently there was a discussion amongst Iraqi intellectuals who felt that it's about time that uh, a law, a draft law, they wanted to make up a draft law out, outlawing sectarianism, right? I think it was Tahrim al-Taifi or Tajrim al-Taifi or something along those lines. And immediately in the discussions that came out of that, you see the problem with this lack of definition. So. Some people approach the issue as needing a law that bans the incitement of violence or hatred along religious categories. I mean, that seems fairly straightforward enough. But other participants felt that a law outlawing sectarianism should also include outlawing loyalty to a foreign state. Of course, that's a poke at the pro-Iranian uh, forces within Iraq. Others felt that such a law would also have to include outlawing patronage systems uh, um, and, and patron-client networks. And that, to me, was a good example of how uh, the term comes to encompass so much uh, that it stands in the way of something as, as uh, applaudable as trying to come up with a law to remedy some of the issues that are related to uh, sectarianism. So I'll conclude on this. I know, I know I've taken over my allotted five minutes. Um, the, what, what, I, what I advocate in the book or what I argue in the book is that this, the, the phrase needs to be abandoned, that we need to move our focus to sectarian identity, to better understand how sectarian identity works, and to allow us to jettison the term sectarianism and unpack 
the 1001 things it refers to so that we can better analyze what it is we're talking about. We can better analyze those individual components that are collectively and very unhelpfully referred to as um, sectarianism. Great, thank you, Fanar. Charles, may I come to you for, for some initial reflections and a response to that then, please? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to what uh, Fanar's doing. I think he does it very well. Uh, and I like that first, because I think he deals with this quite head-on in the first part of the book. And I think uh, I share many of his misgivings about how it's been used in one form or another. Um, and also, of course, it being highly charged as a, as a term. So it's that famous thing of saying, um, I'm deeply religious, but you are sectarian. You know, there's a, a sense in which uh, that becomes a, a, a form of insult. I suppose the interesting thing for me, and I suppose I don't know whether, I mean, Fanar's understandable uh, solution to this is to abandon the term, but to try and pick out of it the things that are still important, sectarian practices, sectarian identities, sectarian relations, and so on, which I think is fair enough. But I suppose there is a key question underlying it, which may come may relate to the question of the use of the term sectarianism is what work do we want it to do? What work do we want this term, not sectarianism, what work do we want the identification of sectarian practices, sectarian relations to do? Is it doing something that other social science terms don't do? Uh, is it identifying something that no other analytical frame captures in quite the same way. Because I think that Fanar was moving towards that, and I think that's fair enough. I mean, I think it's perfectly valid. If you take context seriously, you have to think, why do sectarian concerns? I think later on in the book, he uses this wonderful term, sect-centric, which is quite difficult to use without making it sound as if everyone you're talking about is eccentric, but it's, uh, it's certainly uh, part of it. So I think that's one of the questions that I'd like to reflect upon a bit is, what work do we want it to do? What work do whatever terms that we're trying to find, what do we want them to do? Hmm. Sure. Morton, do you want to add anything to that before we come back to Fanar? Yes, actually, because actually, <clears throat> uh, my first remark, uh, yeah, besides saying thank you to Fanar and for Simon for, for giving me the chance to engage with this book, which I really, I, I, I really enjoyed reading it, reading it in his pleasure, discussing it now. But my first question relates to the question of whether is, is the aim, the ideal for you, uh, Fanar, that we should, as a, in a sense, we, we are seeing in, in recent years the emergence of a kind of academic field which is about studying sectarianism all kinds of expressions of Italianism. And the CEPA project could actually be seen as a reflection of this because it deals with uh, sectarian dimension related to uh, in international politics, to democratization, authoritarianism, identity politics, and various fields. And the common denominator is then something with sectarian. So, the, the, so, so on the one hand, we have a position that an emerging academic field on studying various dimensions of, of uh, as a, as a various sectarian dimensions, and the other possibility, and in part of the book you point in that direction, and in other in, in the opposite, there we should actually leave the whole debate about sectarianism as a field, and instead we should, when we are studying IR, we should study IR, and then doing it on a, 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 as a 
that, that it should belong in the field of IR just as, as uh, the role of uh, playing the sectarian cards in authoritarian politics belong in the field of, 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 of studying authoritarianism and so on and so forth. So the, the question is, if you were the master of the universe, what kind of direction would you aim at? Because on the one hand, you're pointing to how, in many ways, um, sectarian politics is quite alike other forms of identity politics. But at the same time, what that poses the question, okay, what's the utility then talking about sectarian identity, sectarian relations, sectarian dynamics? What is sectarian about that? Are there any common denominator uh, uniting these different uh, uh, sectarian dynamics when it comes to authoritarianism and international politics? Do, do we find some kind of common denominator making it? Uh, meaningful talking about uh, as a, to, to, to having the, the sectarian prefix. Um, so, in the ideal world, what in the future study, what kind of direction would you want us uh, to, to, to go at yeah, as in, in the direction of some kind of more nuanced field of sectarian politics where we acknowledge that there are different dynamics and so on and so forth, or leave it and, and then those interested in IR. Uh, to talk with the IR friends and those with, with talking interest in authoritarianism and sectarianism are talking with the authoritarianism studies friends. Hmm. Okay, uh, thanks for that, guys. Uh, well, let me start by, I mean, there's, there's a section in the book that I call the study of sectarian identity between obsession and allergy. Uh, and I think this touches on, on this whole debate. The, the, some people are absolutely obsessed with, with, with these categories and uh, it, it ends up getting inflated under the banner of sectarianism, of course. Whereas other, other, other writers, other people are allergic to, to using the, uh, the vocabulary of sects or of sect coding particular issues. And the question I pose, and I think this might be relevant to both of your questions, is that in some cases, I mean, we should be wary of, of uh, sect co using the, the vocabulary of sect or sect coding events when it's not uh, necessary or not, not warranted. But we should also be wary of sort of a contrived allergy or a contrived sect blindness in contexts where clearly the uh, language of sects, the role of sectarian identity is clearly relevant. So, for example, if there's a demonstration that comes out or a movement that comes out that's specifically calling for the rights of a particular uh, uh, sectarian group, um, is it, does it make sense to avoid the language of sectarian identity when it's so integral to the movement we're trying to describe? I mean, it would be like describing Black Lives Matter absent any reference to racial identity. It just would not make sense. Um, so the question is, I mean, to go to, to Charles's question, why sect code, or rather, what, what's uh, the utility of, I mean, it's, in some cases, it's a reflection of reality. And I think it's our jobs to be very careful in actually accurately reading a particular context and not assigning these terms more than they can bear. Uh, calling, I mean, this is, of course, to link it to Morton's question, in an ideal world. Unfortunately, we're not in an ideal world. And the reality is, the second you sect code something, Shia protest, Sunni party, etc., it leads to a whole host of assumptions, normally negative assumptions about the phenomena we're describing. That's a problem that, quite frankly, I haven't found a, a, a solution around. But I, I am against this sort of set, contrived sect blindness. 
in contexts where it is absolutely clear that this is relevant. So in the same way that we should never overestimate the relevance or we shouldn't see uh, sectarian dynamics where they don't exist, we should also not be artificially blind uh, to them when they do exist. Because if for no other reason, that in some contexts can help perpetuate uh, um, discriminatory relations of power under the name of sect blindness. So you see this, for example, in Iraq when uh, Sunni actors, for example, raise the issue of Sunni victimhood or raise the issue of um, Sunni access to, to state resources or the like or any kind of oppositional uh, voice, one of the most effective ways to silence them is to accuse them of sectarianism. Fana, it strikes me that there's, there's something else at play here as well. And if I'll just if I can just throw in a very quick question. It strikes me that there's there's a degree of positionality at play in terms of of the lens through which we're looking at these particular events and that we bring our own positionality into our analysis of a particular event or our reading of a particular event. So do you have a, a very short bit of advice for, for anyone who's wanting to, to critically reflect on their own positionality with how they view these, uh, these events to try and avoid sect blindness or indeed prescribing too much or putting too much emphasis on sects in particular instances to avoid the problems that you're, that you're uh, pointing to here? I don't know if there's a, a quick fix to this. I mean, it strikes me that the more familiar you are with the context, uh, the better you'll be able to read these nuances. So it's like, and again, to bring this back to what Morton was saying and Charles about how to link it to the broader social sciences. I mean, if you're looking at, let's say, uh, uh, race relations in the United States, you can imagine um, a similar problem coming up with someone who's unfamiliar with the United States or unfamiliar with racial uh, race dynamics in the, in, the, in the United States, where it becomes very easy to either overinflate or underestimate the relevance of racial categories. And I think the same thing might apply here. I mean, it's, it's good old-fashioned due diligence and immersion in, in, in a particular field and a particular society to better understand it without imposing one's own prejudices and, and, and uh, assumptions onto, onto the context. Sure. Thank you. Charles, you had a finger. Uh, it struck me from what Farah said just now as well, and it runs through the book as well, which is thinking about the performative power of sectarianism, in inverted commas, but also sectarian epithets, sectarian labels, sectarian relations. And I suppose one of the challenges, and one faces this in other areas of social sciences too, is to ensure that your usage or our usage of it doesn't have the same performative power as the actors themselves. So you're trying to both understand the performative part of the term sect, sectarian, sectarianism within particular political contexts, and yet try to use what it's trying to identify as something uh, forensically useful rather than something that is part of the same problem. And I think that Fanar identifies very well in the first part of the book the way in which actually the the usage of it becomes part of the problem itself. So just a question then on, on uh, its use and, and what we're trying to get at is the notion that are you suggesting that in some ways it becomes a diagnostic term uh, that doesn't explain anything but leads our attention in the direction of something that needs explaining, something that can't be explained by other means, perhaps? I don't know. Morton, is that a pen as well? Sorry. Sorry, Fanar. Yeah. Just after you. Yeah. Oh, 
Um, just one thing that, that struck me also, uh, Charles, in, in response to what you're saying, um, I mean, context, of course, will dictate the performative effect of these of these of the terminology. And an example that I always raise, and I think it's one that I raise in the book as well, is, for example, how Shia flags and Shia symbols uh, were were seen as highly problematic a few years ago in the context of the war against uh, Daesh. Even before that, I mean, I wrote an essay on this in, in 2012 how Shia symbolism is used to assert a triumphalist kind of Shia identity. Now, fast forward till today, and now the context has changed quite quite significantly in Iraq. Those same flags, symbols, etc., are still there, but with different connotations. Mm -hmm. so they've become almost part of the background. They're, they're, they're no longer as contentious as they were. And that's a function of a changing context rather than anything intrinsic to the symbols themselves. So back to my ideal world that Morton is, is dangling in front of me, uh, my ideal world would be for people not to come to, not, not to approach the subject with these assumptions uh, and with these sort of um, biases and, and, and uh, uh, prejudices against or for uh, a particular set of symbolisms or what have you, because the meaning of those symbols are, is not constant. Uh, it's not constant and will be dictated by uh, context. Morton. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering <clears throat> if you could elaborate on your views as for, because I think there's a distinction between what's going on out there and then our ability to explain what is going on. To, in the sense that it's quite obvious that you find regimes playing the sectarian card and so forth. But does that mean that we need distinct theories, distinct uh, theories about sectarianism, or can we use uh, theories from the existing toolbox to understand the use of, of the sectarian card, or the existing theories on, for instance, ethnic politics is not useful, for which reason there's a need for distinct theories Morton's freezing, but I think that's actually a, a good segue into my next question. Uh, the, the question was pertaining to the study of, of sectarianism, and perhaps if we can move through this slightly quicker than we did the first one, but that raised so many interesting points. Sorry for, for speaking over you, Morton, but it was over your frozen face, so uh, I hope you didn't take offence. Um, in terms of the, the debates then... I mean, what, what debates can we apply to the study of sectarianism? Is it that we should be using a particular set of, of debates and theoretical conceptual tools? Or can we borrow from, from a broader social science, um, social theory type um, set of discussions, Fana? What, what's, what's the thought? Well, my opinion, and I've always been of this opinion, is that I don't think we do need a separate sort of uh, a theory of sectarianism or a separate theory of sectarian identity. And I do try my best, I mean, this is one of the other motivations of the book, is to try to locate the study of sectarian identity within the broader social sciences. And the literature literatures that I rely on, of course, uh, account for the variant contexts in which sectarian identity comes into play. And that does include IR theory, it includes the literature on nationalism, it includes critical race theory. But I think this is more a discussion for the next uh, uh, discussion point that I believe we're going to talk about in a minute. Uh, so rather than uh, preempting 
the, the, that question. Let me talk a bit about the, well, the study of sectarian dynamics and the binaries and dichotomies that have dominated the field. As I said, one of the motivations of the book was to move the discussion beyond these binaries, uh, false dichotomies, if you like, things like religion and politics, sectarian identity and national identity, from above and from below. Dichotomizing these concepts is inherently problematic in that it flies in the face of a far messier reality, one in which these concepts are invariably intertwined rather than separate. And you've got a cluster of such binaries that are ultimately rooted in notions of unity and division, which itself is a problematic binary when sectarian identity is concerned. We talk about sectarian unity, we talk about sectarian division, but we often overlook the far more common reality of sectarian irrelevance. In fact, one of the arguments I make in the book and elsewhere is that the closest thing we have to a default setting for sectarian relations is banality or irrelevance. In other words, Sunnis and Shias are far more likely to interact positively and negatively as people who happen to be Sunni and Shia rather than as avatars of their sectarian identity. Right? Mm -hmm. And this is precisely why we remember instances of sectarian conflict and also instances of sectarian ecumenism, because they are the exception. Most cases, people don't have to announce their ecumenism and don't fall into, into sectarian conflict. Now, in many cases, the unity division binary underpins a series of other binaries. So many writers wishing to emphasize unity will invariably focus on top-down dynamics, and they'll adopt an instrumentalist approach that sheds light on exogenous factors and elite politics. Whereas other writers, wishing to emphasize division, will invariably focus on bottom-up drivers and adopt a more primordialist approach that highlights endogenous factors and social dynamics. And what I argue in the book is that these concepts cannot be dichotomized. So it's not that I'm against top-down approaches or against bottom-up approaches, it's that I think we need both. Elites do not have free reign to operate on a tabula rasa, and by the same token, public sentiment doesn't operate in isolation of elite politics. There's a circular relation between the two, with each shaping the other. The same goes for those who dichotomize religion and politics. You cannot overlook the intertwinement of the two and the circular relationship between them. And this can take positive and negative forms, which is something that I think is overlooked. We often assume that the intersection of politics and religion is inherently problematic, it's inherently divisive, even nefarious. But it's not always so. Religion and politics sometimes intersect in fairly innocuous and mundane ways. Sometimes they intersect in beneficial ways. And the, good, the best example of that is the various taqrib initiatives, the ecumenical Sunni-Shia dialogue initiatives. Um, these have often been political projects sponsored by political powers for their own interests and perhaps due to their ideological leanings as well. This is as true of Nadir Shah in the 18th century as it is of the Al-Azhar in the mid-20th century. These were political projects. One final point on dichotomies. I think there's a, there's a meta-dichotomy, if you like, in the, in the field between what I call maximalists and minimalists. So those who inflate the relevance of sectarian identity and those who underplay it. In other words, the 1,400-year-old conflict crowd and the we-are-all-brothers crowd. 
Both are problematic in how they present their arguments, namely by cherry-picking historic and contemporary examples of sectarian hate or sectarian ecumenism um, to prove their point. In the process, they not only write out inconvenient historical episodes, they also ignore the role of context and the flexibility of sectarian dynamics. They also have another thing in common, these two positions. In trying to either maximize or minimize the relevance of sectarian identity, you perhaps inevitably end up framing sectarian identity itself as a problem to be overcome. So sectarian identity becomes a handicap that either needs to be or already has been overcome by modernity and the nation state. Which brings me to the final and perhaps most ubiquitous false dichotomy, namely that between sectarian identity and national identity. And I dedicate a whole chapter to this in the book because it's such a common fallacy. Sectarian dynamics are always, at least in part, a reflection of their times. And in our own times, this will often include the construct of the nation state and nationalism. So it is often the case that sect-coded conflict or sectarian competition are often reflections of a contestation of nationalism rather than its negation. But in dichotomizing sectarian identity and national identity and presenting them as polar opposites, the literature often ends up making unfounded normative assumptions about the divisiveness of sectarian identity, and it also ends up making unfounded normative assumptions about the inclusiveness of national identity. So in the process, we end up firstly ignoring the intertwinement between the two, uh, and we also end up overlooking the extent to which nationalism is inherently contested with or without sectarian frames of reference. And again, here you have parallels with the cultural wars in the United States or debates about multiculturalism here. Um, <clears throat> there are a lot of parallels that we can draw on uh, to show how the contestation of nationalism and the nation state employs these various identities. Now, for anyone listening saying, well, that's uh, a false analogy because, you know, why didn't, you know, uh, Iraq and Syria have descended into sect-coded civil wars, but we haven't had a, a race war yet here or in the United States. I'd say that they descended into civil war not because the animosities are any stronger. Rather, it's because the environment, the context in which this contestation was taking place was more conducive to the emergence of civil war. Weak states, security vacuum, et cetera, et cetera. Great. Thanks, Fanar. You mentioned a couple of terms that I think lead us neatly into Morton in terms of meta and um, the, the different dichotomies in Morton's wonderful uh, article, wonderfully titled article as well, actually, Beyond the Beyonds. So, Morton, do you want to share some perhaps slightly brief reflections on, on these debates before we get into some of the more substantive uh, discussions about what Fanar presents in terms of a uh, of a different dimension to look at sectarianism or sect-based politics or however we want to discuss these. Yeah, of course, I'm all in for getting beyond uh, binaries and uh, getting beyond uh, uh, either or, uh, everything, nothing, and so on and so forth. Uh, so I'm all in for that, and, and, and I think you provide a very intelligent, nuanced discussion and a sharp critique of this, this binary way of thinking. Then, of course, I would also like to push you a bit in the sense of 
saying that that there's danger maybe if you're saying we should avoid these binaries because both religion and politics, both top down and bottom up, will be important. How do we avoid ending up in everything is important, that everything impacts everything? How do we avoid a circleist, as a circular argument you actually refer to and, and to some kind of circularity? And, and in my view, at least, it, it is necessary to push the uh, debate then to specify the so how question, how is religion, politics, top-down, and so on and so forth, interrelated, intertwined, also when, where, whom. Uh, for instance, when it comes to religion, for whom does it matter, in which kind of situations, how does it matter? Uh, as if we're going to get beyond primordialism, instrumentalism, okay, it, are there more ways of doing it? I think so. Okay, are more of these ways more useful than other? As for when, if, if both bottom-up, top-down uh, approaches grasp important dimension, is it so that bottom-up uh, approaches grasp different kinds of aspects of reality compared to top-down, and how do we combine them in the, in the most efficient way where we, where we avoid ending up in a one-to-one -one description of reality, but actually also have some theory which simplifies reality? Thank you. Charles, do you want to add anything at this point just before we hand no, back to... I think to... that's a, it'd be a good point to, to see Fanon. Sure. Yeah. Over to you, uh, Fanon. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, I see, I see what you're saying, Martin, that, you know, you, you don't want it to be about everything and nothing in the end. Um, but it strikes me that in a lot of, in a lot of cases, in a lot of contexts... I mean, it's unavoidable to actually examine the, you know, both sides of the coin, if you like, but whether it's bottom-up versus bottom-down, whether it's uh, the role of foreign actors versus uh, indigenous actors, and there is the, that interaction often exists. Now, I think the simplest answer might sound like a cop-out, but I think it's, it's the simplest and uh, most accurate answer I can give is that ultimately it is context-dependent. Um, so, I mean, if we're looking at, uh, let's say, the way in which uh, the language of sectarian division is employed by regional actors vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Syrian civil war or vis-a-vis -vis Iraq or vis-a-vis -vis whatever, um, I mean, inevitably, we're going to be focusing on top-down discourse. Inevitably, we're going to be focusing on elite, elite discourse and the like. I just think that that, even in such a case, it cannot be taken in isolation of what's going on on the ground, because then we fall into the intentionally or not, we perhaps end up giving the false impression that elites are operating as puppeteers with society sort of having completely no agency in this. Um, and we do need to sort of look at what are elites using on and what notes are they hitting when employing the sectarian cut and why those notes resonate at a given time and not at others, because these things are not constant. So I, I say that, uh, I'll say one more thing about the, the religion and politics. Again, context is going to dictate quite a lot of this, and we do have to, to examine sort of that intertwinement on a case-by-case -case basis. But one thing, a recurring theme I've come across in the literature is using that dichotomy of religion and politics to sort of uh, exonerate religion of any culpability in the onerous crime of sectarianism, right? Um, and it strikes me that that's almost, you know, intentionally done. To ring-fence religion, uh, the better to exonerate it from 
complicity and, and sectarianism, if you like. And it's the same with the top-down, bottom-up thing. Um, often we see a focus on top-down top -down drivers and top-down mechanisms, which is fine, but in some cases it's done with the kind of in a way that seeks to exonerate society uh, of any role in what is being referred to as sectarianism. Great. Thanks, Fana. Charles, do you have anything I mean, to add here at this point? Well, I think that uh, something that's come out of uh, the exchange there is, is interesting because it reinforces the notion that in some ways um, one's using it as not as a label, but as a sectarian, a heuristic device, if you like, a way to think about what is it that matters to people in a particular place at a particular time. And I think one of the interesting uh, problems that we have as uh, social sciences scientists is that we are inheritors of a Enlightenment uh, tradition that finds religion deeply problematic. You know, it's a symptom of primitivism, of superstition, and we may not subscribe to that ourselves, but it infuses much of the literature that we have been exposed to in some form or another, and comes in, as Fanar has mentioned, in the very sort of normative way in which sectarianism is used, like taking off the nasty bits of religion, sticking them into sectarianism. So, but actually, one of the interesting things that um, uh, I think that uh, uh, Fanar mentions Bactisi and his notion that um, in many ways sectarianism becomes the secularization of religious identity. And equally, a former colleague of mine, Shilipta Kaviraj, uh, had this when he worked on South Asia and uh, sectarian religious identity in South Asia, and his thesis was the way in which sectarianism thins religion. That in a sense, religion is thick, complex, ambiguous, full of ambiguities, ambivalences, and all kinds of extraordinary. But when you get sectarianism, you have a thinning out of religion. And he was taking particularly the uh, example of what had happened to Hinduism. Uh, with the BJP in India. So I, I think there's an element here which is something really quite interesting, which is not to equate sectarianism with religious belief, but rather to say that, and this goes back to the question that, that came up before, what is it that people are doing to religion in using a sectarian frame, if you like? So is there something distinctive about the sectarian frame that does things to religion, does things to politics, does things to society, social relations, practices? And this is why I mentioned right at the beginning, one sometimes thinks of it, and I think it comes out in, in although not explicitly in what Fanar says, as thinking about sectarianism as a diagnostic, as a, as a way of thinking about what is it doing to the way people imagine the other, imagine themselves? What is it doing to the mental maps that they have formed. And I think, uh, again, in the book, um, uh, Fanar refers to Bell's work on mythscapes. Uh, that is the, 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 and you could say the same thing applies to, as it were, chronological mythscapes as well. The, you know, the sense of history, what kind of history is being repeated. So all these things allow one to begin to investigate. I mean, Fanar uses the simple term context, but actually, it's incredibly complex because it's, in a sense, using the ways in which these things have an effect and then use, finding a form of explaining why they should have the effect they do at the time they do, in the place they do, and to affect the people to, under, I mean, to undertake certain kinds of practices or not. And none of that, I mean, a lot of that is a susceptible, I would, I, would, I would go along with Morton, a lot of that is susceptible to social science explanation in other contexts where you're not talking about 
the distinction of religious belief, but you're thinking about what is it that mobilizes people? What is it that animates people? What is it that makes people constitute the enemy of the other or, or not? The so in a sense, there's a lot of common ground with other uh, instruments in social science. Those two haven't always escaped from the binaries that you're concerned about. But it's clearly one of the uh, intentions, you could argue, of, of uh, 21st century social science is to, comp is to problematize that, to make that much more a complex and a context-rich and specific uh, um, set of exploration. So I think in that sense, um, the Fanar's book is exploring elements of that to say, if you're going to take context seriously, these are some of the practices you have to take seriously. These are some of the imagination or imaginative aspects you have to take seriously. Hmm. I think that's a really interesting point there, Charles, and, and also the performative as, as you yourself have, have obviously explored in, in your own work. For now, in the spirit of um, moving through our topics and, and allowing space and time for, for Q&A, I wonder if you could possibly address some of Charles's as comments in the, whilst also perhaps flagging up some of the, the different approaches that you present in trying to help us to, to work through essentially what Charles has, has called for us to do in terms of, of understanding the, the complexity or the, the messiness of, of context. And you present four different layers or dimensions across the book in terms of the doctrinal, the subnational, the national, and the transnational. So would it be possible to, to present some of those, those cases and perhaps demonstrate how those, those dimensions help us to do what it is that, that Charles and, and Morton have basically called on not just you, but everyone to do, because I think you do such a good job of, of basically addressing what they're, they're calling for more people to address. Sure. Uh, I mean, just now the discussion on religion and politics and the role of what mobilizes people, and the first thing that came to my mind is that, I mean, here it's important to realize that sectarian identity is not just any one thing. It's not always about doctrine. So you look at, for example, the mobilizational discourse in sector-coded conflict or sector-coded competition or sectarian politics or whatever you want to call it. Uh, in some cases, it has absolutely nothing to do with doctrine, like zero, nothing to do with doctrine. It's uh, related to narratives of national authenticity or uh, national entitlement or whatever. In some cases, though, we can't just completely discount uh, doctrine. I mean, clearly doctrine is important in, I don't know, justifying tech theory violence, for example. And that highlights the importance of not viewing sectarian identity as one thing, much less subsuming everything related to it to under that problematic title, sectarianism. Um, and so the book promises uh, to go beyond just admiring the problem and to actually try to propose a solution. And the solution is the model that you mentioned, Simon. So what I propose in the book is that we disentangle ourselves from the ism and turn to the roots. So abandon the term sectarianism and turn our attention to sectarian identity. Because however you choose to define sectarianism, it is ultimately related to and rooted in sectarian identity. How it's imagined, how it's utilized, how it's framed, how it's institutionalized, etc. So that's the root, that should be our starting point. But of course, as is clear from this discussion, sectarian identity is anything but a straightforward concept. And we need to be careful not to turn sectarian identity into another problematic phrase like sectarianism. So to that end, uh, in chapters three and four, I outline a conceptual framework that I hope sort of will allow us to better understand sectarian identity. 
And basically, as you pointed out, Simon, the model argues that rather than being any one thing, sectarian identity is best understood as simultaneously operating on four overlapping, interdependent, and mutually dialogical dimensions. And these are the doctrinal, the subnational, the national, and the transnational. So the doctrinal dimension is where sectarian identity is framed and is imagined and is experienced in relation to a set of religious truths, a set of doctrines. The subnational dimension relates to hierarchies of power and uh, uh, power dynamics within a given national setting. The national dimension concerns nationalism and the nation state and the way that sectarian identity can potentially intersect with these. And finally, the transnational dimension is where sectarian identity offers a prison for international relations, transnational solidarities, and geostrategic competition. So in this way, sectarian identity becomes the sum of its parts, namely these four dimensions. And as I said, they are overlapping, they're in constant dialogue with each other, and you can't really focus on one to the complete exclusion of the others. Fantastic. Now, if I may, some of the benefits, this links to the question of social sciences. One of the benefits of a model like this is that you can better identify the correct tools and bodies of literature to match to a given context. So, for example, I found critical race theory to be quite useful in understanding sectarian dynamics at the subnational level. But critical race theory has absolutely nothing to tell us about sectarian identity at the transnational dimension, where IR theory is more relevant. And this goes back to a question that kept coming up about how to link it to the social sciences. And I'm a firm, firm advocate of locating the study of sectarian identity within the social sciences, whether it's you know talking about clientelism and, and patron-client networks. We have a whole literature on that. Uh, that we don't have to reinvent the wheel just because Sunnis and Shias are involved. Likewise, nationalism, likewise, international theory, and the rest. Um, do you want me to go on, or do you, uh, I noticed you jumping in, Simon? Are, you, are we pressed for time? Uh, well, slightly, but it's fascinating. And it, it's really interesting hearing this, this contextualization in social theory. Maybe we need to do a round two at some point, Fanar. But uh, perhaps, Morton, can I come to you on this, just to hear, hear your thoughts on, on this, this multi-stage, multi-level approach, please? On the one hand... I find it very useful to uh, subdivide, to disaggregate this phenomenon. It is one of many important contributions of the book because it shows how different layers are associated to different kinds of dynamics. So you are going to look at different kinds of toolboxes, and 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 in and, and, and some kind some in. And, and sometimes it is really not unique, uh, distinct from all other kinds of politics. And at other times, there are actually some more distinct uh, uh, features to, to we, you need to be aware of. I think it's very important. Uh, my, my, my two questions are, one, you are looking at what you could say fields or layers, but an, 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 an alternative approach would be to look at forms of sectarian dynamics instead. And that relates to my second question as for, it's quite clear to me the distinction between subnational, national, and transnational. But the doctrinal is for me a, a kind of different kind of dimension compared to the, because the three others are layers, uh, uh, 
below the uh, national level and below the uh, national level. But and I'm wondering, could you find the doctoral dimension very much in play both at, 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 at the transnational uh, and, and the subnational level instead? So for me, there's a bit of a tension when it comes to the three other layers and then the doctrinal layer. Um, so I, I would be curious uh, on your thoughts as about that. Okay, um, shall I take that one, yeah. Simon? Yeah, please. Okay, that's it's a good point, uh, Martin, but <clears throat> I mean, again, I should stress that these dimensions, and I use the word dimensions more than layers, because layers does suggest a hierarchy. Um, but there is no hierarchy. Uh, that sort of, as I said, these dimensions are in constant dialogue with each other. So the doctrine might absolutely be enlisted in the service of what are otherwise uh, uh, more appropriately classed, uh, termed uh, uh, as the subnational dynamics, right, or dynamics related to the nation state. But that's not always the case. And sometimes doctrine, as I said previously, plays zero role in perpetuating sectarian divides. And by focusing on, by shedding light on, for example, the subnational dimension, one thing I found really useful is that you can better illuminate uh, aspects of sectarian dynamics that often people sort of ignore. There's a tendency to think, oh, is doctrine relevant? Because these are religious categories, ultimately. So the role of doctrine comes to be uh, questioned. Yet sometimes, particularly at the subnational dimension, sectarian cleavages interact with other factors, such as regionalism, tribalism. And I think most importantly, uh, most relevant and most overlooked is how it interacts with class divides, how sectarian prejudice and class prejudice interact with each other. Um, so in such a case, for example, doctrine is often neither here nor there. Uh, so I'm not sure that doctrine should be separated entirely, especially if we accept that the other three dimensions, they're not layers, they're dimensions, there's no hierarchy, so to speak. It's a question of these four dimensions in, in a given context, how do these four dimensions interact with each other? Which is more in play rather than a question of four separate concepts? Charles. And yes, I just say that the, uh, it struck me that, uh, as with Morton, that the, the four categories, four layers, had this outlier, in some senses, the, the fourth line of doctrine. Not that it was irrelevant, far from it. But one of the things that struck me, maybe because you couldn't talk about it in that chapter, but it came out simply when you started to talk about Iraq, is that doctrine isn't just a free-floating thing. It's something that's attached to very particular social categories, different educational groups, different authorities. There's contest between authorities within the same religious grouping to get their view across. So that it's actually, doctrine can often be taken to be, you know, a fixed, a thing that just sits there. Uh, but clearly it's not what you intend. And so I think that maybe it was a bit misleading as a term, but I can see that you needed a term to use it. But actually it's the... It's the social interpretation of doctrinal questions and the groups that are attached to it and the dynamics that bring it out that intersects with all those other uh, dimensions that you were talking about. That's when I begin to make sense of it more. But more, to be fair, I could see that much more working when you're talking about a concrete case such as Iraq. I'd also add on the on the I mean, one of the one of the roots of this idea of putting in that fourth layer or that fourth dimension. Um, I often speak with, with colleagues, what have you, who work on intellectual history, um, intellectual history of Shia Islam or Sunni Islam or what have you. And their critique of the likes of us 
is that we're completely oblivious to that, that we all too readily sort of overlook religious traditions and the like and religious texts. Uh, that's certainly true in my case. It's just not my speciality. But I thought it's a very valid point that we are, and this goes back to your point, uh, uh, Charles, about how we are sort of that sort of, uh, not anti-religious, but that tendency to take a critical stance from religions infused in the, in the literature. Uh, so there's a tendency to, to view this as basically doctrine as a fig leaf behind which lies the real uh, motive, which is economic or political. That's, that's a, a very common tendency. By introducing the doctrine of there, my, my intention was to allow space for instances where that's not the case, where actually doctrine is playing a role. And in some cases, it is playing a role, particularly where Sunnis and Shias from different national contexts interact. Because then that becomes the, the site of commonality and hence the site of contestation. As the doctrine is Islamic history rather than national history. Uh, it's, it's, it's religious truths rather than national truths. Uh, and the example I, I, I mentioned is, you know, if, if a Malaysian and a Lebanese are having a sectarian argument, it's far more likely to focus on uh, uh, doctrinal elements and, and religious truths rather than national truths because there's no national commonality between them. Well, let's delve deeper into that empirical issue if we if we can, and we've got about half an hour to to maybe get through this last point and then open the floor to Q&A. There's some fascinating questions coming in already, but I think adding some empirical meat to the bone might be useful. So, for now, you you talk about 2003 and the emergence of a a sectarian wave, and I think what that that does nicely is it opens up scope for for some, some really interesting and important discussions about how all of these things fit together Post-2003 obviously opened up some some important and delicate balances uh, in terms of demographics, in terms of relations between rulers and ruled, in terms of geopolitical contexts, all those different dimensions that you've been addressing thus far. So can you just shed a bit more light on, on what's happening post-2003 and, and how your approach helps us to understand this, this sectarian wave? But with regard to how... How politics plays out for people, I guess. Well, first I should uh, mention sectarian wave is not my phrase, it's Daniel Byman's phrase, uh, which I think we've all benefited from. Um, So in that chapter and the final chapter as well, I try to sort of just explain what has happened since 2003. And one of the things I argue is that the understanding what 2003 and what came after it is not, you know, you can't relate it to sort of uh, the breadth of Islamic history or as, as the most recent episode in a 1,004-year-old uh, uh, issue. Rather, the, the drivers of the sectarian wave are to be found in relatively recent Iraqi and regional history, such as the fallout of 1979, the evolution of the Iraqi opposition in exile in the 80s and 90s, and how their outlook converged with uh, U.S. policy and with how the U.S. Uh, viewed Iraq. Of course, after 2003, there's the policies of the occupation authorities in Iraq. You have the timing of the invasion and how it coincided with the new media revolution. And ultimately, the way that 2003 disturbed the balance of power between sect-centric actors in Iraq and, of course, in the region. Um, So come 2003, it was a very sect-centric opposition that was empowered in Iraq, and ethnocentric as well, of course. I mean, you had significant sections of 
the Shia political classes, and these are the United States' chief Iraqi interlocutors, mind you, and they approached 2003 and its aftermath very heavily through the prism of Shia victimhood and Shia entitlement. And again, this converges with U.S. interests and the way in which the U.S. framed Iraq. And perhaps inevitably, the pushback and the broader struggle for power became similarly sect-coded with ordinary people having little option but to seek their security, their well-being, and their interests through these newly emerged sect-coded channels as Iraq descended into civil war between sect-coded political and, and militant camps. Um, and of course, the way in which 2003 disturbed the balance of power between sect-centric actors within Iraq had regional extensions in the form of the links between uh, uh, many Shia, uh, Shia political actors and Iran, in the form of the regional fears as to how Iran was going to capitalize on what was going on in Iran, and, you know, as most famously iterated by King Abdullah, the emergence of a, of a Shia crescent. This helped transnationalize what was going on in Iraq. And I think one way of thinking about the sectarian wave, what is the sectarian wave? It was the transnationalization of what was going on in Iraq after 2003. And here, I mean, just a side note, social media, I think, played an excellent role. It didn't cause it, but it's an excellent role. And all of which set the stage for how 2011 was to pan out. Um, because the intervening years between 03 and 11 created a regional narrative of sectarian conflict and sectarian victimhood in which sectarian dynamics in a given national setting were seen as part of a larger transnational uh, context. And I think that transnational element is crucial. What makes 2003 and 2011 stand out for me is the importance of the transnational dimension in blurring the lines between the national, the transnational, the doctrinal, and the geopolitical. And the way that these years superimposed geopolitics onto sectarian identity, sect coding geopolitics and geopolitically coding sectarian identities. I mean, compare that to earlier episodes, with the exception of 1979, of course, uh, whether you look at the uprising in, in Bahrain in the 90s or the uprising in Syria in the 80s, these are sect coded events, but they lack that transnational dimension. They failed to trigger a sectarian wave. And I think this is where the impact of 03 and 2011 really come out, in that transnational dimension. Um, I don't know how, how we're doing for time, Simon. Happy to hand over to you. Yeah, we're good. That's really fascinating. And it's got me thinking about some realist social theory, the likes of Margaret Archer, in terms of the, the, the broader structural conditions that allow for certain events to take place in the way that they do as a consequence of emergent properties and, and whatnot, and the necessity of those particular properties to be there for X or Y to happen. It strikes me that that's, that's a really interesting way of looking at what you've just, just talked about with regard to to the events of Bahrain in the 90s, Syria in the 80s, and them not having the same transnational uh, sort of underpinning, let's say, that we saw post-2003 or post-2011. So it's, I think that's really interesting and some, some interesting scope to reflect on in terms of other social theorists and theories that we can apply. But, Charles, perhaps I should hand over to you at this point um, with, your, uh, with your hat on. Take your pick of hats. <laughs> My rocky hat. No. Well, yes, that will do. <laughs> For <Fanar's> presence. <laughs> uh, but, I, I mean, uh, I think it's, 
I broadly agree with the with the uh, the argument the finance twenty four. Of course, as soon as you put up a date to say it's after two thousand three, everyone say, oh, oh no, of course not. But actually, it's it's a useful again. I would say a useful thought device because it makes you think. What was preparing the ground for this? It didn't pop out of nowhere, as as you quite rightly say. So, what was doing the work that began to make certain categories, certain mythoscapes, if you like, credible to certain people? What was doing the work that allowed certain organisations to revolve around particular forms of sectarian organisation, sectarian identification? And since uh, we we start on the question mark. You can see that in many ways, um, one of the interesting aspects, <laughs> interesting is a, a mild way of putting it, of, say, Saddam Hussein's regime was that uh, it had what you might call a sectarian effect. It wasn't in the sense that the kind of patronage, the kind of intimidation, uh, the attack on any alternative forms of leadership uh, in whatever part of the uh, part of the country it, it was, whether or not based on ethnic or other grounds, had a sectarian effect. People began to say, you could protect yourself from this, you could protect yourself from that, and if you joined these organizations, you were going to be picked upon, not because you were Shay, but because you belonged to a Dawa, or whatever it was. So it began to therefore create it. And of course, the uh, eight-year war with Iran makes for a very strong transnational set of possibilities. I mean, organic links, as well as um, you know, real links of, uh, of um, infrastructure and so on. So again, much of this happens. So I think two things may be worth thinking about is, and this, this is where one takes context seriously, as, as Farnal said, which is, what is it that's happening in the preceding period that lends itself to certain narratives that then become extraordinarily powerful in the present. So after 2003, what had been happening before that didn't just cause these ideas to jump into people's minds, but actually made a certain kind of narrative very, very powerful? And of course, linked to that, the organizations that knew how to use it. And this isn't purely cynical instrumentalism, because I take Fanar's point, these people were as much immersed in this set, this, you know, this uh, mythoscape, if you like, as anyone else. But the other thing that I find really interesting after 2003 in Iraq, but it, it could be happening elsewhere, is what you might call the inner sectarianization or the inner sectarian relations of the Sunni Muslim community in Iraq and elsewhere. The realization, and I think Fanar captures it very well in the book, where he um, suggests that in some senses the position of many Sunnis was rather like um, uh, this is when you talk about minority majority, rather like whites who, who accept the status quo is the status quo. We're not a particular ethnic group, they say. Uh, we are just the norm. And you could say for many things, suddenly it was a very different position and they had to think about themselves in different ways. And what one of the fascinating things I, I picked out of what you uh, wrote for now, but also I've once seen it in process elsewhere, is how the ways in which people begin to define what it is to be a Sunni Muslim begin to reflect very closely what people have been doing to define themselves as a Shia Muslim. Not only because of victimization, but also policing the boundaries, deciding what was doctrine and what was not doctrine, and the anathematization of large chunks of people who were Sunni Muslim, who happened to be Sunni Muslim, because they were the wrong kind, not Sufis only, but you know, generally people. So there was this, uh, uh, this is where I'd, I'd, I'd uh, 
certainly agree with the Fana's analysis of post-2003. It was not something that was happening only in Iraq, but it was certainly in Iraq where one saw it, but one saw it elsewhere as well. And you've seen it in Syria, you've seen it in the Arabian Peninsula and the Gulf generally. So this notion of the sectarian effect being something that comes out of a certain combination of politics at the time and of concern and, if like, historical moment, but equally uh, begins to take over different ways in which people organize themselves and then shapes the way in which people think of their identity and think of the identity of the others. So I think that I, I would go along with that very much. Thank you, Charles. Morton. Um, in the last two uh, chapters of Fana's book, uh, the analytical uh, framework is put into play uh, and applied, and I think in a very convincing way. I really uh, was thought it, 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 it was very useful, and I was convinced by, by seeing how actually this framework can be used in making a concrete analysis, and I think that was very useful. Um, I have two, 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 two questions. The first question is that you emphasize very much the transnational dimension as for the post-23 evolution. You don't pay that much, much uh, you, 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 uh, you don't use that many pages on the Iranian revolution. Um, and, and, and you could also say that does also have, that, that did also have a, a transnational dimension. So how do you see the similarity differences between the rate impact of the 2003 first question. The second question is that I agree completely that you saw a sectarization of regional politics post-2003 and still there are these exceptions as for instance the summer war 2006 between Hezbollah and Israel where it was certain that uh, certain uh, elite actors tried to play the, the sectarian card trying to frame uh, Hezbollah as a Shia actor and so on and so forth. And what was striking was that it didn't really resonate that much in the Sunni Arab public uh, sphere where Nasrallah happened to be very popular. And then when you then continue to 2000 as opposed to post, uh, uh, 2011, the same kind of actors are trying to, to play the sectarian card again, but now it seems to work. So, so actually, it, it just underscores your point about that the top-down approach is important, but it is not sufficient. You have to understand changes on the ground in order to understand when does such, such kind of top-down approach work. But I, I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit more what had changed between 2006 and then post-2011 uh, for the utility effectiveness of playing the sectarian card from the leads. If I can ask you to elaborate, but perhaps briefly elaborate, Fana, we've got eight questions, well, seven questions that have come in that are really interesting, but only 20 minutes left. Okay, well, you cut me off as soon as you see fit. I'll be as quick as I can. Um, Charles, one thing on the sectarian effect and on the context and all, I think a fascinating what-if question is if the United States had invaded Iraq in 1991 and enacted regime change in 1991, would the same... Uh, 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 sort of sequence of events have, have panned out, and I don't think that it would have for, for reasons relating to recent Iraqi history. With regards to Morton's uh, points, <clears throat> you're right, I don't put that much ink about the Iranian revolution, uh, but I do sort of mention it in passing at least, 
that one of the things, I mean, the Iranian revolution is the closest thing we have to a parallel to the sectarian wave, a pre-2003 sectarian wave, if you like. It didn't catch fire the way that 2003 did, I think, because, I mean, I think the phrase I used is that 2003 realized the fears that had been aroused by, two, by 1979. Um, a lot of the fears that came out of 1979 were not realized. So there was a threat, but it was uh, um, uh, put in check, so to speak. Whereas 2003, the, you know, the worst nightmares of regional leaders had come true. So I think that's a big difference in that, and that a fundamental change in the balance of power between sex-centric actors had taken place in 2003, which is not the case with 1979, despite the violence that took place in the Gulf. And elsewhere, it was quite sporadic in the grand scheme of things. With regards to 06, I happened to be living in Abu Dhabi in 06. And uh, I remember seeing Hezbollah flags being you know, paraded on cars in solidarity with, with Hezbollah, which is unthinkable. Imagine Hezbollah flags in Abu Dhabi today. Um, but I think, I, I, I mean, it's, we should be open to contradictions in people's sentiments. Uh, because I think anti from my vantage point anyway, I thought, I thought that anti-Shiism at the time was through the roof as a result of what was happening in Iraq. Um, but that didn't stand in the way of solidarity with Hezbollah in the face of Israel. Um, and we should also remember what was going on in Iraq was still fairly recent. In the summer of 2006, that's when events in Iraq were really escalating fast. Um, so I wonder if it was if Hezbollah had had their war in 07 or 08, whether that would have had the same effect. Because there's a there's a lag time uh, between what goes on in Iraq and how it's perceived outside. So in terms of what happened between uh, 2006 and later years, well, Syria, Syria and Iraq as well. Once Iraq had, had uh, what's been going on in Iraq has had become uh, better understood, and also Syria and Hezbollah's role in Syria, uh, I think perhaps irreparably damaged Hezbollah's uh, uh, standing and image in the broader Arab world. Great. Thank you, Fana. Really interesting stuff. This has been fascinating and very provocative. Lots to reflect on. Now we have the unenviable task of working our way through a number of, of pretty uh, important, interesting, and equally provocative questions. So what I'm going to do is sift through these, and I'm going to try and do them um, in terms of, of levels of analysis rather than the ways in which they've come in so that we can try and get as many uh, many done as possible. So please excuse me if I miss something. Um, one from Lawrence Rubin. Do you set out a set of conditions for what would qualify as sectarianism or see it as sectarianism? Are there guidelines, conditions, indicators, uh, brackets, use of religious symbols to combat another sect are a necessary condition, for example? Um, and then on that note, there's another one here in terms of the use of sectarianism in an instrumentalized way by elites becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. In other words, are people becoming sectarianized by the sectarian rhetoric used by various forms of elites as a tool of propaganda? Uh, and then I think in terms of, of the broader conceptual questions, that's it for now, and then we'll come on to a different level in a, in a minute. So, Fanar, over to you, please. Okay, the first question is the easier one because you know my answer. I think sectarianism is a redundant phrase. Uh, 
asking me what qualifies as sectarianism means rehabilitating the phrase, which I have no intention of doing. Uh, if, if we're talking about uh, the use of religious symbols to incite hate, then let's just call it that. Uh, at least that does not implicate, intentionally or not, other forms of, of, of uh, sectarian identity, other expressions of sectarian identity. So again, I, I strongly urge people to just abandon the term, unpack it, uh, use a more precise vocabulary to identify specifically what it is we are concerned with and talking about what is relevant to a given context. So that's the first question. Second question, if I understood it correctly, can elite discourse, tools of propaganda and the like serve to sectarianize people? or sectarianized society, if that's the question, then absolutely, and it goes to back to what Charles said in, in his previous conference about how a series of events can, can create a new reality. And I think the case of how Sunni identity was constructed after 2003 in Iraq and beyond, I think is a great example where basically a, a context was essentially imposed on Iraq and on particularly on Sunni Iraqis who were quite, uh, let's say, less familiar with sex-centric politics and sex-centricity in general, um, a system was imposed on them where they had to create a sectarian identity in order to negotiate their way through this new political reality. And of course, that has a normative effect of its own. Uh, after five, 10 years, 15 years, a new generation emerges who has seen no other reality. That, of course, has its own, its own um, a normative effect, but it would be a mistake to frame this as one-way traffic. Uh, and there is this notion today of desectarianization, which I think is a real thing, even if we can critique the term itself, but it's a real thing that is happening in identity has lost its relevance, lost some of its political relevance in the last, I'd say, five, six years, and how the lines of contestation are no longer as easily framed in, uh, in, in terms of artificially clear-cut Sunnis and Shias, as was the case 15 years ago or 10 years ago. Great. Thank you very much. I'll just say that I am, I've am i jotted down all of these questions so I can send you over a, a list of them all for now, just so you've got a record. And if anyone wants to follow up, I urge you to do so. Um, we now move to the, the local level, if we're working through a levels of analysis. A question from uh, from AK. What is the, the state of the literature with regard to how sectarian politics differ locally? What, in your view, are the most critical questions yet to be explored under this topic, and what are the most critical cases to investigate? One from Fatima Kalu. Thank you for bringing up such an interesting discussion. Um, Sect-based identity in Lebanon has become increasingly salient. Civil conflict progressed. Uh, how do sectarian dichotomies shift so quickly, especially in Lebanon, when the political system rests on a rigid balance of power between the different groups? Uh, one from Aidan Parks. The subnational level of sectarian identity is particularly interesting. Can you elaborate on this domain, particularly with regard to the emphasis on perceived or real class difference, tribe difference, uh, some allusion to temporal and spatial factors, interhuman, intersocial domain is perhaps a useful glue in limp linking doctrinal domain with transnational domain to remedy the context-dependent variable stemming from the two-century-odd construct of the nation-state? And I'll leave it at that for now. Sorry for now, you have an unenviable task here. <laughs> yeah. I'll try to be super, super brief. Um, 
Well, let's take that last question about the subnational dimension. So I'll, I'll give you a, an example, for example. Uh, the, 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 take, take the case of anti-Shiism in Saddam's Iraq, right? Like structural anti-Shiism. I've made the argument in previous works, and I think it comes up in this book as well, that uh, it may well be the case, and it might be more accurate to frame the Saddam regime, and particularly Saddam himself, himself as not necessarily being anti-Shia, and that whatever discrimination uh, faced by the Shia majority areas was not necessarily driven by a sense of anti-Shiaism, that it could anti-Shiaism could be the direct result of tribal discrimination, whereby certain areas are given more resources, certain areas are closer to uh, circles of power due to tribal relations and regional proximity rather than due to sectarian affinity. Uh, so that's just one of the ways in which the subnational dimension uh, comes up. The issue of class I find very interesting because I find that it's, it plays a, a, a very important, very salient role in how Sunni Shia division manifests in personal relationships. Uh, and that's something I think the literature has not looked at as much. We're very good at looking at power dynamics and structural discrimination and like, but as a, 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 a societal level of analysis that I think is underserved. And by bringing in class uh, considerations, I think we can start to remedy that. As I said, sectarian discrimination and class discrimination, sectarian prejudice and class prejudice are very often intertwined uh, with notions of uh, respectability, uh, national acceptability and the like, national authenticity, uh, playing a role in questions of inclusion and inclusion and narratives thereof. Um, the other question, how do they differ locally? I suppose it's very, my answer would be very similar to the question I just answered. And uh, the sense that that local dynamics, we do need to dig in, and I think it would be very worthwhile for future research to compare local dynamics across different contexts. I mean, a very stark example would be uh, 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 local sectarian relations in a place like Kuwait compared to Bahrain, for example. An extremely different landscape that highlights the point that Sunni Shia uh, identities do not predetermine uh, how Sunni Shia nor do they predetermine uh, how how they relate to state power. So that local element, I think, is absolutely relevant um, and, and worthy of further study. Uh, there's no one answer to that. How they all differ locally? I mean, each each context will have its own specificity. Uh, but again, proximity to power, relations with power, are they problematic or not? Is power contested along sect-coded lines? Um, and if so, how did that come up? Because even where it is the case, it wasn't always the case. There are reasons for how these narratives and how these frames of political of oppositional politics are uh, uh, come about. Sectarian dichotomies, how do they shift radically? I don't know. I, I mean, I hesitate to... In Beirut. Uh, I hesitate to speak uh, about uh, uh, Lebanon at any length for fear that there are Lebanese people in the audience who know more about this than I do. Um, but I think a, a broader point, I mean, Lebanon is not, is not necessarily unique or sui generis. We could make the broader point that where sectarian dichotomies have shifted radically in the past, one driver that seems to repeatedly come up uh, is this issue of the balance of power between sect-centric actors. Are they in a modus vivendi, where they just want to keep the system going on, or do uh, sect-centric actors see, see a benefit in mobilizing uh, sectarian animosities and the like? Also linked to that, what is at stake 
So think about, again, I'm, I'm sorry to bring it back to Iraq, but think about Iraq after 2003. Everything was up for grabs. Everything was up for stake. Every, uh, everything was up for contestation. Um, that level of uncertainty, that level of fear, plays a role in how these dichotomies shift. And I think that there's a great paper on the role of fear in the Lebanese civil war and how that created a sense of helplessness amongst respondents who said, you know, I uh, um, uh, sort of adopted, a, you know, I fell into sectarian entrenchment because I was forced to by circumstances. So I think that might be a variable that we can apply to multiple contexts rather than just uh, uh, Lebanon. Um, though, I mean, if there are any Lebanon-specific variables that anyone else can, can point out, I'm happy, happy to hear that. There was a question about key, uh, key questions sort of sub-nationally in terms of, of what you think most important that, that should be asked that, that haven't as yet. And then I have maybe two more before asking Morton and Charles to, to have any final remarks. But for now, what are the, the key questions, do you think, that, that need to be asked that haven't been asked in terms of the, the local uh, evolution of sect-based politics or sect-based identities? If indeed there are any, given the emergence of this sort of sectarianism studies that Morton was alluding to earlier on, no, I think I think I'm sure there are uh, key questions because, as I said, the literature has been less good on the uh, local dynamics and has focused more on state policy and interstate relations and the like, or doctrinal uh, uh, dimension. And I think that there are questions. And it's a really good question that's being asked here, and I have to confess that I'm I'm thinking on my feet here. Um, but in terms of how economic distribution, what role it plays uh, in fostering different different sort of living standards across across different regions, what role tribalism plays? Again, I'll point to class. Um, are educational uh, resources applied equally across the board? How does that factor in? Um, how, do, how does the transnational dimension actually impact on local dynamics uh, and for what reason? Uh, because again, they, they impact very differently from one country to another. Uh, why, does, uh, why did 1979 have a more receptive audience in some Shia communities and not others? Uh, why did it have a, a transnational effect in some places and not others? This is where I think examining that local dimension is important. And I really appreciate the question. It's something that all of us, I think, is worth our time going away and thinking. What are uh, the overlooked uh, questions when it comes to the local dynamic? Because it is underserved. The one I've tried to address most is the, the, the class dimension. Uh, and there's a lot more work to be done on that. But I'm sure we can do, we can do a lot more as well. It's something to definitely think about. Great. One final question, and I'll apologize for those whose questions I've not got to, but time is, is not our friend today. But the question refers to global changes. Are there any global changes and global um, contingencies, if you will, that can shape how, how sect-based politics plays out, how that geopolitically charged sectarianisms plays out, as you were talking about earlier. I mean, there's a, a key focus, as you say, on, on state politics and interstate politics. But what about that global level of analysis, if you will? What are the, the factors there that may shape um, the, the evolution of, of relations between different sects? Another tough and excellent question. And you have 90 seconds to... <laughs> Thank God, because it's a tough question. Uh, so 90 seconds. Um, I mean, one that comes immediately to mind is imperialism. 
uh, and the way the imperial policy has, has utilized uh, and deepened sectarian cleavages. And that applies across the board from, from, from 19th century Levant to 2003 uh, to 2011 as well. Um, how imperial interests, local, uh, pardon, regional uh, state strategy as well, how it factors in. I mean, these I'd all uh, list as, as uh, global factors. I'd also say that you, the local is also, I mean, the, the, the national at least is also factors into the global. And here the sectarian wave is a good example. So I've been living, in, I was living in Southeast Asia for eight years. I found it astonishing that there was an echo of Sunni Shia conflict in a place like Malaysia or Indonesia where Shias are less than 1%, uh, where this is an issue that has never really been that hot, hot not, not much of a hot-button issue. But as a result of what was going on in Iraq and later on in Syria, uh, you see a sort of a global echo to what was going on in the region. Fantastic. Thank you, Fanar. Morton, any final words? Um... We, we have uh, for now uh, one, one, one hour and 30 minutes discussed Fana's book and we could actually go on. For instance, we haven't had the chance to discuss the chapter about minority, majority issues, demography. So if not anything else, that should be a reason why people should go out, buy the book, read it read the book in addition to all the other excellent chapters. I, I, I really enjoyed that uh, chapter because demography, there's been a tendency to ignore it because often democracy has, has been seen as a problematic, uh, 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 deterministic uh, understanding of sectarianism. And, and, and in this chapter, Fernanda provides an, an elegant way and very convincing way of how we should be aware of demography, but not in a deterministic way, but actually how demography matters, and also how, for instance, anti-Shiism, anti-Sunism, for instance, differ, and how pan-Islamism differ when it comes to Shia and the Sunni versions. So, so, so that's a, a, a dimension of the book we haven't had, had the uh, time to discuss, but I think it's a very important uh, contribution also from the book. Thank you, Morton. Charles? You can't, oh, Unmute excellent. myself, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in many ways, I think that um, what Morton said is, is something that I would like to follow up because it's one of the, the strengths, I think, of the book, one of the many strengths of the book, is the fact that it demonstrates that politics changes. Uh, therefore, in a sense, our understanding of what is at stake and the understanding of the subjects themselves about what is at stake changes. So at the very time people are trying to fix the understanding of sectarian identity and relation, they should also take into account the fact that politics changes. So, as Morton said, demographics is important because politics changed dramatically when suddenly numbers counted in politics. For much of the last uh, 2,000 years, numbers didn't count at all, except if you could marry, you know, put armies on the field. But in terms of politics and rights and voice, none of that counted. And, of course, in the last 60, 70 years, it's been something of extraordinary importance. That's changed the very nature of politics. So I think that, that in that sense, what comes out of the book uh, is an idea of using the sectarian coding, the sectarian relations, sectarian, uh, sectar sect-centric understanding of things to try and understand how the politics has changed, who gets what, when and how, 
uh, and therefore on what basis and what does it leave people with. So, and I, I would also echo the fact that I found that the empirical uh, chapters at the end on Sunni Shia on uh, Iraq were, were really powerful because in a sense they had been preceded by a, a thoughtful uh, deconstructing discussion uh, that made one suddenly realize that these things can be used in a way that is exemplary. So my hope is that others will follow Fana's uh, example and use the critical deconstructive lens of sectarian identity and sectarian relations uh, to bring a different tone to the debate and a different tone to the analysis, as I think he succeeded in doing in the book. Like on Kerr. For now, it would be remiss of us not to give you a final word, if there is one or two. Honestly, the, the most important final word would be to thank all three of you for such a humbling reading of the book and uh, for taking the time to, to, to discuss it with me. Deeply honoured, and thanks to everyone else for, for participating and for the questions. Well, it's a truly wonderful book. I urge everyone who's not read it to go out and get a copy. It's well worth your time. It's well worth spending the intellectual energy on it. Yes, we have our copies. Uh, a huge thank you to Morten Valbjorn, Charles Tripp, and to Fanad Haddad for, for giving up your time this afternoon. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I really appreciate the time that you've spent going through it, the thoughtful engagement, and Fanad, your time to, to engage so eruditely with, with the questions and, and everything that's gone on. So it means a great deal. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you for your questions, for coming along. And we're going to do this again next month. Um, we're going to do it with May Darwish to talk through her fascinating book on Saudi Arabia and its foreign policy. So thank you very much. Thank you, everyone. Take care. Stay safe. Adieu. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.